welcome to the Kitchen Confidant podcast. Today, we're chatting with Tony Dash of the site Boulder Locavore, as well as the newly launched Make It Skinny Please. Based in Boulder, Colorado, Tony has been developing recipes for over two decades when she recognized a need for quality gluten-free recipes for her family. Her site, Boulder Locavore, has been a resource for both conventional and gluten-free recipes. And with her new site, she is sharing her secrets for transforming classic recipes slimmed down. Tony has also been one of my personal best blogging friends ever since we met at Blogger Food many years ago. I am so excited to welcome Tony to the podcast. Hey, Tony. Hey, thanks, Lyrin. I appreciate the intro and the opportunity to chat. I know this is so different because normally we just pick up the phone and call each other. I know we do, but this is fun too. <laughs> it is. Okay. So I know, you know, I always start by asking what's the first thing you ever cooked and how old were you? So the first cooking memory that I have was probably elementary school. And I had the Betty Crocker kids cookbook. Did you have that too? I'm trying to think which one I had. I don't think I had that one. It was the kids version. And I actually still have mine. The pages are falling out and the whole thing, but I still have it. And I remember there was a cake recipe that I loved. Mm -hmm. And then when I was a little bit older, probably in middle school, I had a friend who lived down the street whose parents wouldn't let him cook at all. And he loved making eggnog out of this cookbook. And it was at a time where nobody was worried about pasteurized eggs. <laughs> like everything went raw. And every day after school, we'd get off the bus, he'd come to my house, and we would make eggnog. Oh, my gosh. And I'm guessing there was no alcohol in that eggnog. But there was no alcohol in the eggnog. <laughs> Not mine. I don't know what my friend Paul did with his when he would excuse himself to go to the bathroom. So we don't, <laughs> we don't, we'll never know. Although I wouldn't be surprised because you're known for your cocktails. Yes. <laughs> okay. So on the record, there was no alcohol. There was no alcohol. No. <laughs> so you've been developing recipes for longer than you were blogging. But yes. I love the story behind the personal food experiment that started Boulder Locavore. So can you tell everyone how that began for you? Yeah. First of all, I've always asked this. A locavore is the name of a person that eats within a certain radius of where they live. So it's usually 60 miles. And around the time, so I started my blog in 2010. So it was probably the year before earlier that year, the locavore movement began to really pick up steam. And Michael Pollan, who's a famous journalist, wrote some books about it. And it just, it seemed like a really cool thing to do. And at the time I had a farm share. So I would go to the Mm -hmm. farm once a week and pick up stuff. So I was reading all about these people practicing locavorism, but you know what? They all lived in California, which as you know, I used to live in California and it's pretty easy to eat locally and fresh all year round in California but I'm in Colorado and I just thought, I wonder if you could do it over a Colorado winter sourcing your protein and majority of your produce, like from a 60 mile radius. So I just kind of took off to do that as a personal experiment. And I did do it. And I discovered all these great resources in the process, farms that greenhouse grew and winter markets, all this great stuff. And I just found myself, it seemed like everywhere I went, talking about it with people, like whether it was on my kid's playground or at a coffee shop. And each time the people would say, could you send me those links? So I would go home. And in hindsight now, I don't know why I didn't start a Word document and put the links in it, but I would always start from scratch. 
Oh. So it went on and on and on. And so the last time this happened, I was meeting with another mom friend and we started actually a school garden project together, had the same conversation. And she said, would you send me the link for that pumpkin farm in this? So I went home and I would have to go to the website and then I would cut and paste. It was like 17 links. And I oh, decided... Gosh you know, I need to put these somewhere where people can come and find them. And maybe that's what a blog is. And that's where I should put it. And that's kind of how it started. And I didn't even really know what a blog was, to be honest. So I kind of just started writing about all my food experiences there and then found because I was eating really seasonally. So right. when you eat seasonally, the ingredient drives the recipe. So you don't pull out a cookbook and go to the farmer's market, try to match things. You go find what's fresh and then you come back and re-engineer it. Mm -hmm. And so what I found was the recipes that I was posting, which were pretty simple, were actually getting some traffic. And so that's kind of what ended up driving the direction of Boulder Locavore. And I still eat local, but my, my recipes aren't exclusively seasonal. They're seasonally inspired, but I don't just eat from farms and stuff at this point. Okay. So you've expanded beyond. I've expanded, yeah. <laughs> and as, as you mentioned as well, I'm gluten-free and my kids are gluten-free. So there were certain ingredients that I can't get locally in order to prepare gluten-free food. Now, at that point, the gluten-free situation was completely different. There were not, you know, big brands did not make flour that was gluten-free it was a very cottage industry. So it was much more challenging to find core ingredients like flour that tasted good and worked well. Now it's, it's not that issue, but that was, you know, part of my limitation at the time. Right. I mean, nowadays there's a whole aisle dedicated to gluten-free. I know. It's great. Uh, and yes, but back in the day, that wasn't the case. It was not. And so a lot of the ingredients just weren't very flavorful. Garfava mm. flour was super popular because it's got great binding, but it it's made from uh, garbanzo beans and fava beans. So, you know, oatmeal cookies, they don't taste fabulous when they have like a bean undertone. <laughs> <laughs> well, when you put it that way. <laughs> yeah. So it's, yeah. So fortunately it's, you know, a lot of things are good about the change, but yes. So my blog has really expanded and really now it's focused on easy, flavorful food. And my goal is, to make it approachable. So anybody, regardless of their cooking ability, can find recipes that they can make and not take hours or days to do. So that's kind of my mission for that website. Right. And so now I know that you and the kids eat gluten-free, Yeah, but your husband doesn't. Well, so how does that work? He, he does in that, you know, there are a couple things, cereal and beer he will eat that have gluten, but really he just, you know, jumps on board and eats with the rest of us. And really the easiest way to eat gluten-free is to eat whole foods. So, mm -hmm. you know, normal whole foods that you would eat wouldn't have gluten. It's, you know, processed foods or, you know, trickier sauces. But now again, let's say if I made an Asian inspired meal, there's tamari, which is gluten-free. So it's a soy sauce equivalent. So it's just very easy to change it up. So it would taste the same, mm -hmm. but be gluten-free. So he just goes along with the gluten-free crowd in our house. Well, that makes it a lot easier. What yeah. I love about your, your locavore experiment and that experience is that 
cooking that way, when you are cooking seasonally and you're dictated by what's actually available to you, I think that really hones and sharpens your recipe development skills. I agree. Great point. I never thought about that, but I, that's probably actually what allowed me to learn to develop recipes because I did, I would go to the farmer's market. I would talk to the farmers and I always had kind of this mission to pick stuff out that I didn't know what it was. So I would, if I saw produce or whatever, I would talk to the farmer and ask, you know, what is this and how do you prepare it? Because that just was fun to me. I was very excited and inspired by ingredients. And so I think you're absolutely right. And I never thought about that. So thanks, Laren. <laughs> you're welcome. Are there any things that are local to Boulder that might be harder to find somewhere else that you've discovered? I can't think of anything produce wise. Not really. I mean, probably for other parts of the U.S., you know, I would guess there's a, there's an overlap with what we have here with different areas. Probably every area doesn't have everything, but I can't think of anything that's indigenous to this area that people couldn't get elsewhere. Right. At this point, no one's really foraging for the berries or right, exactly. <laughs> the, odd, the odd thing that you yeah. find. I, you know, I had friends who um, were also doing the very local farm shares and they would share a cow. This was up in Oregon. And I used to love her stories because, you know, she'd be like, yeah, we have a cow share. <laughs> yeah. And I thought that was so fascinating and just a great way to eat and really appreciate your food. Definitely. Well, and you are more connected with your food system. So mm-hmm. we typically eat organic whenever possible. And, you know, I think when you eat local and organic, what I noticed is that the produce stays fresh so much longer. It makes you really realize when you get it, even from a great store, that time on a truck or wherever it's come from, it just changes how long you can enjoy things. Whereas if you get them locally, most often they'll last a lot longer and, you know, be fresher when you get them. That is such a good point. I've noticed that too. You're right. You're absolutely right. Okay, so you've lived in Singapore. I have. And traveled extensively. So I want to know, like, how did that inform your cooking? So I just flashed on a memory. Um, I was I was in Singapore with the company that I was working for. The company had taken over a Singaporean company, and certain representatives were from the U.S. were sent over to kind of partner with our local equivalent to kind of do training and the rest of it. And so I was over there for quite a while. And I remember right before I came back, an American friend said, what are you looking forward to? Like, what do you miss? What food? And there was nothing because the kind of bigger American restaurants had a presence there. But the food and the style that was available there really wasn't available in the U.S. or certainly, you know, at the time that I was there. So I loved the food. I just dove headlong into the food. And Singapore at that time, at least, was kind of equally divided between Malaysian, Chinese, and Indian food. Mm-hmm. So you could kind of get anything that you wanted. And I learned a lot about different preparation methods and curries and things like that. I'd always had curry, but they prepare it very differently. So I think that that kind of infused itself both into my taste buds in terms of what I really gravitate toward, but also in certain methods and little tricks that I learned. um, I try to incorporate that into the recipes that I create now. 
Is there a specific trick or tip that? So the one thing that really, and you know, people who make curry are probably going to roll their eyes and think, okay, so that's a kindergarten tip. But for me, it was huge at the time where I think I had always seen my mom make curry where everything just got kind of thrown into a pot from what Mm -hmm. I remember. But the, um, you know, making a curry paste from scratch and allowing that to warm and become fragrant in the pan Mm -hmm. before adding the other ingredients just really makes, I think, a different end result. And, or toasting spices, you know, most of us are used to pulling it out of the pantry and throwing it in there, but especially with whole spices, if you put those in a warm skillet and let them toast for a couple minutes while they're fragrant Mm -hmm. and then grind them, it just, it's a really different flavor. Yeah, that's such a good point. You know, I remember I did a, I did a recipe once and someone commented like, no, you should put the coconut milk. Like they were like criticizing at what point I put the coconut milk. And I realized they're right. You know, they're absolutely right. Yeah. It's amazing what you can learn. So you're always learning. Yes. And did you take any culinary classes while you were in Singapore? or I did did not you- while I was there, but we used to eat at the hawker centers all the time, which are mm-hmm. kind of open food courts. If people haven't been a place like that, it's literally people that have a little tiny stall and they probably make one thing right. and they're all lined up and, and then there are tables outside. So you go and you kind of get stuff from all the different booths and bring it to your table and eat it. So they're cooking it right there in front of you. So, you know, just in that observation, I learned a lot. And some of the Sing- our Singaporean friends, I went to their homes and, you know, watched them prepare food, or they often live with their parents and grandparents, and they would prepare food. And I think because I was super excited about it and really wanted to learn they just wanted to show me everything. So it was great. And I loved those opportunities to kind of go to their homes and see how they really prepared the food authentically. That's something you and I have talked about this recently, but, you know, honoring the authentic nature of food is really important to me. I think it's kind of a sacred thing. And Mm -hmm. so when I make recipes that are from a culture, I really try to stick to the organic method to honor that. Some recipes, for instance, I have a recipe on my site for Singapore street noodles. Well, they don't make Singapore street noodles in Singapore. That's an Americanized dish and it's delicious. Mm -hmm. But I was very clear in the recipe to say, you know, this is not a Singaporean dish. This is an Americanized dish. I think honoring where dishes come from and trying to prepare them as authentically as possible is a way to, you know, pay homage to that food. Oh, totally. I was, I was just talking to somebody else yesterday about that very thing and, and really just appreciating where the food comes from, the reasons behind it, the reasons why it's prepared in a certain way. I think those recipes, the authentic ones are really hard to find. And I also think it's okay to, to take inspiration from, from that. I agree. You know, and to just incorporate it in your own life. But I do think it's just so nice to know exactly where it's from and, and the reason behind it all. Right. I agree. And also there are some people that haven't traveled or haven't really even been exposed to any kind of authentic food. So it's a little bit of a gateway. So not to say that we would be replacing the authentic dish Exactly. I mean, there are some ingredients you can't get. Yeah. For me, offering people an opportunity to taste a different kind of dish with ingredients that they can find while still quantifying, you know, this is how it would be made in its organic state. I don't know. I just, 
it's like taking somebody by the hand and introducing them to a world that they may never have a chance to experience. Yeah, no, you're right. Food and travel go hand in hand. But if you don't have the opportunity to travel, exploring the food is the next best thing, especially now when we're we're kind of stuck here at home. Right, right. That's it. And Armchair yeah. travel through your dinner table. Exactly. That's, my, that's our next website, Laren. Oh, <laughs> like in our free time. Yes, yes. <laughs> That would be so fun. But another good point that you made is that the ingredients might be different. Like even my mom, when she came here to the States, like, you know, gosh, back then it was hard to find certain ingredients. It was hard to find tamarind. So she would have to substitute with lemon. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting, like how a cuisine can change. Well, it's funny, right before I got on this call, I have a, I have my grandmother's apple crisp recipe that I'm updating. It was from 2011 and, you know, it was something we always enjoyed, but when I started making it, it has raisins in it. I didn't have any raisins. So I used dried cranberries and everybody in my house loves it now with dried cranberries. Mm -hmm. And then I also, because I love Southwestern cuisine, I put a little bit of mild chili powder in it, which people may Mm -hmm. shriek when they hear it, but there's a wonderful fusion of like cinnamon and sweetness and chili powder that just makes, it doesn't make it spicy, but it makes it exciting. So that's my evolution of her recipe. And I just think that's how they go. You know, you use the ingredients you have or the things that you like, and you keep iterating these recipes to give them kind of a life. Right. And that's just the evolution of things. I mean, gosh, just look at an old original Joy of Cooking cookbook and there are recipes that you will not want to make. Right. Right. (laughs) So it's, it's constantly changing. Yeah. So, okay. You, we have to talk about cocktails very briefly because you have quite a section on booze. (laughs) So I want to know what your favorite thing to make for fall is and what does your bar look like? Because It must be amazing. So uh, all of my, well, not all, because it's now overflowed. I have a pretty large pantry and the top two shelves are all bottles because I like to infuse (laughs) and stuff. So there's, it's a little mad science-y looking. You know, if it's not nailed down, I feel like it could be infused and I've probably tried almost everything. So (laughs) for fall, I love kind of apple, pear, spice kinds of things. I just republished a recipe that I love, which is an apple cider Moscow mule. And, Mm. you know, it is September, but we're having a historical high of 97 degrees today. So a Moscow mule touches fall, but still is refreshing for summer. Mm-hmm. I've got a great infused pear spice vodka recipe that I usually whip up a batch about this time of year, and it can be used in all sorts of different cocktails. So that's fun too. Oh, you're making me thirsty. Ah. I also have to ask you, because you do love to grill. Yes. You have a grilled pumpkin pie on your I site. I do. Yes. So tell us about that because Okay, so that actually was created. So I don't know if you know who Stephen Reichlin is. He's the author of the Barbecue Bible and a million and a half other books. And he does Project Smoke on PBS right now. So I did a grilling intensive workshop with him, gosh, maybe four years ago. It was a three-day hardcore grilling thing because I've always liked the idea of grilling, but I never really felt 
I knew exactly how to do it. I wanted to feel like I knew it from the inside out. So I went to do this, which is great. And he asked me to do a guest post on his website after that. So I created this grilled pumpkin pie. So I think I used ginger snaps for the crust and I smoked those. So there's Mm -hmm. a method of smoking on the grill that you can do. You don't have to have a smoker where you can get a piece of foil and you can put wood chips that are intended for smoking in it. And the heat of the grill, put a little bit of water, it starts those smoking. So if you put an ingredient on the grill with it, the smoke will infuse that ingredient with flavor. So it's kind of a poor man's smoker approach, but it works. Hey, you don't have to buy a whole new smoker. That's right. (laughs) So I smoked the cookies and made the crust. And then I think I made the pie and cooked it on the grill. And then when I served it here, I have a hand smoker and I smoked vanilla ice cream to go on it. Oh my gosh. That's like It was really good. Wow. Yeah. Okay. I might have to try that for Thanksgiving because that's really unusual. And I it love the idea It's really delicious. Flavor. You know, it tastes like a pumpkin pie, but it's got these different flavor notes of the smoke and, and it's not cooking in your kitchen, which I loved. You know, <laughs> you can put your pie on your grill. Yeah. And save your oven space for other things. That's right. Okay. We have to talk about your new site. Yes. Tell everyone about it and why you're crazy enough to start a new one. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I, I've had Boulder Locavore for 10 years and a lot of bloggers who've been blogging as long as we have are starting to do second sites. And I thought, I don't even know how somebody would do that. And I am a lifetime Weight Watcher member. I've used the program off and on when I've had kids and, you know, different periods of my life. And I think it's really great. And I had met up with some Weight Watcher friends and one of them was saying, is there any place to find kind of classic recipes that somebody has made like less calories or to have Weight Watcher points. And literally I just felt like, you know, I was in Vegas and all the cherries aligned and all the, (laughs) all started going off. And I was talking to him about it and I said, and I thought to myself, you know, I can do that because I eat that way. I know how to calculate points and I kind of think in that way anyway. So I just decided, I think I'm going to create this website that offers that. And this idea actually came up about two months ago. And we literally launched two months after the idea, which is kind of mind boggling at this point. So the recipe concept, as you said in the beginning, is taking classic recipes and making them more calorie friendly using real food. So I don't like the idea of, you know, no fat cheese, you know, I don't use sugar substitutes myself, I'd rather use sugar and less of it. So you know, it's really trying to take recipes that people love and making them in a form that doesn't sacrifice any flavor, but takes some of the calories out of it. So it will, you know, appeal whether they're trying to lose weight, or they just want to have recipes that maybe are more fat reduced, or they're on Weight Watchers, and they want a recipe that's been, you know, had the points calculated. So that's kind of the idea. Yeah, what I appreciate most about that is that you're still using real ingredients. Yeah. And yeah, I'm like you, I'm, I'm not a fan of, let's say the sugar alcohols right, or things like that. There's just a flavor to it that I, I don't enjoy particularly. I, I agree. Their behavior is different. So mm-hmm. I know you know this personally, but I'm also in the process of getting certified as a nutrition coach. So it's a pretty intensive course and 
there are components on everything and the whole sugar scenario and alternative sugars is in there too. And it, it was interesting in reading through that each one has a different signature. So, you know, one is 600 times sweeter than sugar. One is not as sweet as that, but if you bake with it, the flavor changes. Mm. So I like to make recipes that are pretty uniform. So people don't have to buy really niche ingredients that are super exotic and that they can substitute pretty easily. I don't want to have ingredients that people probably wouldn't have in their pantry or can't get very easily. So that's another thing about the whole substitute sugars. And my feeling is if somebody's eating substitute sugars, they'll know how to incorporate that into one of my recipes. Probably right. better than I do at this point. Right, right. Because clearly you have to do a lot of experimentation yeah. on your own. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. So how are you balancing the two sites so far? I mean, it's I can't believe that you launched so quickly, <laughs> but I'm just in awe. You know, um, so far, so good as we head into, you know, Q4, which is always the really busy time. So far, it's okay. They're very different. And so it's kind of energizing to have recipes that are so different from one another. Mm-hmm. And having a new focus is fun because I'm learning some new things. So I just launched last week. Therefore, I haven't really been challenged quite yet pairing the two sites against each other. But right now I'm just trying to interleave. One day I'll work on content for one site. The next day I'll work on content for the other site. And it's got a pretty good rhythm right now. So I have to ask you, because it's like having a second child. Is it easier the second time around? It is. is that <laughs> Well, So my goal in launch, so we have learned a lot. Of course, when you and I started blogging, like me, when I started, a lot of people didn't even know what a blog was. It was not a recognized form of media. It was really more a story sharing platform that then migrated to have credibility as a bona fide media form. Mm -hmm. So we have lived through starting a fun project to running businesses, essentially, And with starting the second site, I'm starting with what I know now from the 10 years of doing Boulder Locavore. So it's easier in that I know where I need to start. We've gone through a lot of iterations in our 10 years of things coming up that we've had to change or how we wrote recipes no longer can do that. And, oh, they have to be in a recipe card and, Mm -hmm. you know, don't tell a story. You've got to do this and that. So there's been a lot of iterations. So this site is starting where Boulder Locavore is now. And in that, it made it easier. It was a lot of work. I'm not going to lie about that. (laughs) It was a lot of stuff to get together. And I launched with 12 recipes. So having prepared those and done all that and, and an email course, and, you know, I really wanted it to be a user-friendly site. I didn't want to start and iterate on the fly. I really wanted it to be complete and add to it. So I hope that that's how it is. Yeah. Well, time will tell. You're a pro, so it'll be fine. And I'm excited. Yeah. Do you have tips for people who might want to launch a second site? Oh, my. Um, (laughs) Don't do it. (laughs) (laughs) I wouldn't say don't do it. I'm joking. You know what you're getting into as well. Get help. You know, I work with a couple of great technical people that I just couldn't have done it without you know, be clear about what your mission is. Number one, be clear about what form you want things to be in when you launch, set a reasonable time frame, 
and think through all the details. There's a lot, there's a lot to it. And so I had a pretty extensive project spreadsheet between technical stuff and recipe stuff and email stuff and all the things that I wanted to do. I'm listening to what I'm saying and thinking probably none of that is helpful for anybody. No, I think it is. I I just think you have to be realistic. It's, it's a lot, you know, it's, it's, but, but it's a mountain, you know, you climb over the top of the mountain and you're over it. And then you're in a different kind of phase of things. So Mm -hmm. there's just a lot of details, I would say. Right, right. I'm just guessing that over time, because as we know, in the last 10 years, things have changed and things will continue to change. So there's always something new to learn and and something new to do and fix. (laughs) Yes, yes. And fix. Yes. Yeah. My hope is with where the second site started, there won't be a lot of backtracking as we have had on our, you know, first. Right. Because things have just changed. And unless you've got a reason to iterate things, you know, we've got this backlog of thousands of recipes. It's, you know, substantial effort to go back and fix things. Right. So I just have to know, are you going to continue recipe developing for both sites or are you going to kind of expand that and maybe have contributors at one point? I don't think I'll have contributors, but I do have people on my team that help. So Mm -hmm. for Boulder Locavore, all of my recipes are both gluten-free and conventional and I'm at altitude. So what I found tricky is baking recipes. So I want to make sure anything on my site can be made wherever anybody is. So I have some team members co-test with me and co-develop with me. Maybe we'll develop a recipe collaboratively. You know, they'll be testing it with gluten ingredients at sea level. I'll be testing it with gluten-free ingredients at altitude. So we have kind of this mishmash process to make sure whatever ends up being published, that all the bases are covered and has been tested multiple times in multiple ways. So I can't ever see myself not being involved with that. And I test everything that goes on my site, whether I have personally initially developed it or not. And I had an experience very, very, very early on that was fortunate where I was given a recipe from a chef to post right before Thanksgiving and I didn't have photos for it. So I made it and I assumed because it was from a chef that it would work. (laughs) And it was a hot mess failure. It was just a nightmare. And I was struck with complete panic at the idea that what if I had posted that without testing it and somebody pulled that stuffing out of their oven on Thanksgiving and it looked like soup as it does right now. And so that really instilled for me, I need to test everything that is on my websites. So I will always be involved in some way. And with Make It Skinny, because it's a different kind of approach, I, at least right now, I definitely have to be involved in terms of how to tweak things to meet a different calorie content, but still have the texture and the flavor that I want. And, you know, the Weight Watchers point levels that I think are appropriate. Yeah, that makes, that makes sense, especially with, with the second site, because you have, well, actually with both, you have a certain skill set that you have to really apply. Right. Right. And I think, you know, I definitely have people that help me. And I think the more work there is, the more people that it makes sense to get on a team. But I think it's also 
to me, my recipes working in anybody's kitchen is the most important thing to me. It really bothers me if I feel like somebody has taken their time and spent the money to create a recipe and it doesn't work. And I do not want that coming off of one of my sites. So we do everything we can. I mean, we can't protect against everything, but we really have a lot of things in place to best ensure that. And for me, that means I'm testing everything too, even if I did not initially develop it. Yeah. I do think that's the key to success. I agree. With recipes in general. So yay. Oh my gosh. You have your hands full. So I better let you go soon. But before I let you go, I have some closing questions. Yes. So what's something you make when you're too tired to cook? Um, I'm thinking DoorDash, but that doesn't really answer your question. (laughs) What do I make, like make from scratch, not heat up kind of thing? Well, just an emergency dinner. I mean, it could be cereal. Uh, For (laughs) me, I eat a lot of soup. So for me, if I, any time of the year, if I don't have an idea, soup is probably my default. Yeah. You and me, both. Now I know why we like each other. Uh, no, it's so easy. What's the one recipe that you treasure the most? On my website? In general. It doesn't even have to be on your site. So I started by sharing family recipes, and those always have a lot of meaning to me because they're written in my great-grandmother's handwriting and my grandmother's handwriting. I mean, nowadays, nobody writes anything in their handwriting. So those are always (laughs) super special. There is a my very, very, very favorite recipe on Boulder Locavore is actually a recipe from a San Francisco restaurant, Pietro 310, I think the name of it was, that my grandparents used to go to. And it's for a boozy kind of dessert thing. And I published that recipe a long, long time ago. And over the years, all these people that were involved with the restaurant, whether it was the owner's children or a cousin, but all these people find this one recipe, I guess, you know, in nostalgia, they're searching for this restaurant, they find this and they've left these wonderful memories about eating at the restaurant or their mom knowing the person who worked at the restaurant. So it's got a soul that I love. Oh, I love that. That's so meaningful. It's just really it's kind of giving me chills right now because it just has been such a magnet for people who were from kind of a different time that have these wonderful memories about this restaurant. That's such a gift that you can give to them too. As much as you're appreciating their comments, they're probably so excited that you shared the recipe. I think you're right. Thank you for that. Okay. Are you a messy cook or a neat cook? Oh, messy. Messy. I've told my husband, one of my um, superpowers is wiping out a kitchen. It's amazing. The most simple recipe, I can wipe out every single surface in the kitchen. It's, it's, it's my one of my charms, I'd like to think. Well, you know, if we ever get a chance to cook together, we will just, it'll be like a tornado hit it. So. <laughs> <laughs> What's a good kitchen tip? Well, so I'm flashing on my friend Yvette, who has Muy Bueno Cookbook, Mm -hmm. and she did a little tutorial for an insurance company. And she had commented about when you're cooking with a skillet, always make sure that the handle of the skillet is turned away 
from the open area in front of the stove. So you do not walk by and Swipe knock it. it off. So that yeah. is totally not my tip. Yvette, thank you. I never <laughs> thought about that, but it's something I always think about now. And then my personal thing that I love is I have a mini chopper, which is like a mini food processor. Mm-hmm. And I chop everything possible in there. I'm a, I'm a little bit of a lazy cook. So anything that I can chop in my mini chopper, I do because I like to save time. Yeah, I'm all about saving time. Gosh, great tip. You know, the the handle thing too, I love too, because I just remember I started doing that when I had kids because I didn't want them to walk by and accidentally hit it with their little heads. Right. Um, And it's just something I continue to do now, even though they're they're older. Yeah, it's a great thing. Well, and I'm a little bit clumsy, so I would probably be the one that would knock it over. So again, thank you, Yvette, the Muy Bueno Cookbook for that tip. Okay. And as you know, on Friday, I like to share five little things, something that makes me smile. So is there anything that made you smile this week? I got a really sweet email from one of my Boulder Locavore readers who discovered my second website and she was absolutely over the moon excited and told me that I am one of her favorite recipe developers on the internet that she's followed me for years. And she's so thrilled that I now have a site for people who want to lose weight. I I thought that was really sweet. That is the greatest comments like that are the best. I know because I want to help people. That's why I'm doing this. And so to really feel like somebody is connected and it is helping them is really gratifying. Yeah. Best feeling in the world. Yes. Okay, Tony. I know where I can find you. Yes. Luckily for me, you're a phone call away. But yes. where can other people find you? Well, will you have my websites in your show notes? Mm-hmm. So they can find me through either of my websites or on social media, either at Boulder Locavore or at Make It Skinny Please. Those are probably the easiest ways to find me. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you, Tony, for spending time with me. This is so fun. It was really great. Thanks for having me. Oh, anytime. Come back anytime. It'll be so fun. I'm so glad you're able to join us on this episode of Kitchen Confidant. Thank you again to Tony for joining us today. Definitely check out her recipes on Boulder Locavore and Make It Skinny, Please. And pro tip, Tony is amazing with cocktails. So be sure to check out her recipes if you get thirsty. If you enjoyed the show, please take a moment to rate it and share it with a friend and join us again next time. Until then, happy cooking.